Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, February 20th, we are studying Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26. In today's text, St. Paul contrasts a life according to the flesh and a life according to the Spirit. Because Christians have been set free by Christ, we are given a life filled with the fruit of the Spirit. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jason Casper. Pastor Casper serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. Pastor Casper, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Pastor Apple, thanks for having me again. This is always a treat. What a great way to spend a morning. Is Galatians your favorite epistle, Pastor Casper? It is among my favorite epistles, yes, sir. It is definitely high on the list. You strike me like a Galatians guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised by that. That's good. Yeah, yeah. We've we've talked about that at, uh, with a number of guests. That Galatians is often a favorite among Lutherans, just to, because of Luther's great emphasis on it. And so we get the opportunity to take a look at it. Uh, take us into some context. What should we know about this epistle and what Paul's been doing leading up to chapter five? Yeah. So Galatians is wonderful stuff. Galatians is probably um, there's a debate about the exact authorship time frame, but among the earliest of Paul's epistles. And in particular, this one is contextually really heavy in the Judaizer controversy that we find in Acts. There is this battle back and forth amongst whether or not the folks coming into the Christian church need to be compliant with Judaism first or not, and how exactly that's going to play out. So there's a lot of actual battle with Paul in, in terms of his language against the concepts the Judaizers are bringing forward and what they, w- what they should or shouldn't do relative to Christianity. This does, get, of course, get resolved, and we we end up having Paul as the as the apostle to the Gentiles and the and the apostles to the to the Jews on on different footing, doing different things, but still working toward the commonality of the Christian faith. So he's spending an awful lot of time talking particularly about the law and the gospel and how that functions for Christians and what exactly is going on here. That the law doesn't cease to exist for Christians, which is actually where we're going to be particularly today in the text, but also that the freedom of the gospel and the forgiveness of sins is a thing that frees us from the yoke of the law in the sense that we need to be compliant as the Jews were in the sense of the Judaizing law, that circumcision must be a thing that's part of Christianity, and that's not the case. So he's been doing an awful lot of that whole discussion coming in. Now we're getting sort of a a circle back, an exhortation, as if we, if you will, that speaks this law again to us in the context of where we're coming out of hearing the, the clear exposition of the gospel as well. So, good stuff overall, and, and a wonderful short little epistle. Um, I, I sat down for this morning for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and, and read all six chapters again just to refresh my mind. And it's, it's fun when, when there's a book that can be so quickly and easily read like that, and you can get the whole thing in your mind and then get into a particular text and dive into it that way. Good stuff. I really enjoy Galatians for that reason also. Because, you know, short things are good for simple people like me. It's nice to do that with the Scriptures, to read the whole letter where you're able, or the whole book, to get that full context. 
I, I, someone once told me that it's good to read short, shorter sections of Scripture and also longer sections of Scripture. We want to be engaged in both, reading the, the small sections and really meditating on even one word at a time, but also then reading the large sections so that we get the full context and the full sense of what is being said and can put those individual words into that proper context so that we see them. Uh, just briefly before we jump into our section for today, with this matter of freedom that Paul's been talking about, it seems that he's talked a lot about freedom from things, and today he's especially going to talk about freedom for things. So there's been a freedom from the law, and there's going to be a freedom from sin, but there's also going to be a freedom for this new life that is given to us in the Spirit. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's this is the whole new man in Christ concept, which he's going to dwell on in many of the epistles. It's it, it It's prevalent here, too. This freedom is not just freedom from the oppression of the law. It's not just freedom from condemnation. It's also freedom to be free of sin. And in the freedom from sin, the Christian is free in the spirit to act in the spirit and to behave away from the, the desires of the flesh. Um, how this plays out, we get a little bit deeper in, in, in Romans also, where Paul talks about this battle in the flesh that, that, that what I desire is not what I do, and what I do is not what I want. This, this freedom in the Christian faith is that, that faith that is alive and active in Christianity brings forth good and beneficial work for our neighbor and, and love of God, and this is the active work of faith in the Christian. And that's really, that's the thing in you, the new man in Christ, that desperately desires to do only good things and is in battle against the flesh, and pushing against the flesh, and casting aside the flesh, working in the other direction. And that freedom is part of what the gospel gives, that there is this, this newfound thing that is separate from the works of the flesh that really wants to be a different thing, to behave a different way, and to flee from all this other stuff. Even though it still remains a battle in, inside us, there is a new thing that's at work, apart from when we were dead in our sin and trespasses and bound, unfree, enslaved to sin and nothing else, and not having the access to faith and the freedom that comes there. All right, so with those thoughts in mind, let's turn to the text. This is Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That is our text for today. That is Galatians 5, verses 16 to 26. Pastor Casper, talk to us about that opening image that Paul puts in the text that we would walk by the Spirit. Talk about the Christian life as walking. 
Yeah, walking the the moving around in space and in life as Christians do. This is it, it, we just had a great uh, Lutheran Witness article last month that was that was all about the the function of the divine service and how there is this constant filling of us by God's work in the divine service. The walking around of Christian life is everything outside of that. Once we are forgiven and filled and, and exhorted and compelled to, to be as Christians are and to dwell in, in forgiveness and faith, then the life we lead outside of, outside of the divine service is this walking around in life as Christians do and being driven by the Holy Spirit in us that is at work driving this new man to works of service to my neighbor, to works of love for my neighbor, to do things that are opposed to the flesh. And a little later, we just got into the, the particulars of the flesh. We can dive into that more in a minute. But the, the, the dwelling in the Spirit and the living in this faith-driven life that is constantly always trying to serve our neighbor and always trying to gratify God and, and do things that are good, this is the faith that just does this stuff. And it's really interesting for us as Christians that we, we think of this as kind of an active intellectual idea. And to a certain extent, there is some of that at play, but it's also just a simple nature of faith at work. And really, my, my part is resistance. That's where the sinful flesh comes back in and, and doesn't want the Spirit to be a faithful, loving Christian, wants to rebel against this other thing. Walking in the Spirit is, is dwelling in faith and, and acting apart from the desires of the flesh. So these, to this, this battle that's in us, Paul's setting this up real well, that the, the Spirit is this thing that is the new external thing that's been given and, and is part of us that is different than the thing that we had. Now we have this other thing that's, that's at work. And dwelling in the Spirit is, is always moving away from the desires of the flesh. Mm. You know, I think connecting it to the thought, thought of walking allows us to think of passages, for example, in Psalm 1, where there's this, you know, we're not going to walk in the way of sinners, but instead we're dwelling in the Word of God. You think of the way Jesus speaks about himself, I am the way, and that language of the early Christians, that they were followers of the way. So the thought of walking, although it is there's an activity, it is a, a passive thing that you are receiving in Christ. You have been placed in this way, and now you walk according to the Spirit, who is the one who has been given to you in holy baptism. Go back to Galatians 4, that because you have been made a son in Jesus Christ, now the Spirit of the Son has been sent into your heart to cry, Abba, Father. So this activity of the Spirit in you to raise up the new man, this is the way in which we are walking according to the Spirit, and that then sets us in this way that's opposite from the flesh. So if when we walk by the Spirit, Paul says, we don't gratify the desires of the flesh, and he says that these two things are opposed to each other. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the Spirit, these are against each other, they're opposed to each other. Uh, talk to us about this conflict that Paul sets out, especially in verse 17. Yeah, this conflict is it, this. This is the Christian life. This is exactly what what the the nature of Christianity is. It is always being aware of and and as as Luther tells us, we rise in the morning and remember our baptism, saying the Lord's prayer, the creed, and one of the Psalms, and reciting a hymn. The these things that reset our minds and remind us that you are forgiven in Christ, and you don't have to be bound in sin. You're not part of that 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 world anymore. So separate yourself from that part of, of what you are. 
but you're going to have to do this consistently. This is something that's going to come up every single day because every day you're going to remember and see again that sin does still have a battle within you, and you're going to lose that on, on, on pretty frequent occasions. And so what are you going to do? You're going to dwell in the, in the flesh and dive right back into that? No. Instead, we, we re- return to the font of baptism, remembering that we are baptized in Christ, and return to the works of the Spirit and return to walking in this newness of life and not walking in the flesh. That's this constant refreshing and renewing within Christianity that every moment and every day is a constant reminder that because we are forgiven in Christ, because you have been grafted in in baptism, you are not bound to sin. Even though that sin is there and that sin was just in front of your eyes, don't remain there. Turn from it again. Go from it again. Go the other way. Walk in the Spirit instead. And that's this this back and forth constant struggle within Christianity. There are sects of Christianity that will tell us that that the refreshing and the renewal and the regeneration is a permanent state and somehow we're not going to find ourselves in sin anymore. And that's absolutely false. And Paul tells us that consistently too. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is not perfect righteousness that never, that never, fa- never fails. That's, that's Christ's work. That's not the work of Christians. Christ's work in us and for us is preserving us in the faith and renewing and refreshing us and returning us to the Spirit again and again because we are not capable of being perfectly righteous, and instead we have this, this conflict, and that's where we're dwelling. But the conflict is an active function in Christianity that we are constantly refreshing and turning and refreshing and renewing and being forgiven and dwelling in that forgiveness, turning away from sin, turning away from the flesh and the desires that drive us that way. And the perfect righteousness is not the righteousness that we have according to our actions. The perfect righteousness that we have is that which we have according to faith, that Christ has declared us, you are righteous, and so we are. We just don't see that. We have that righteousness by faith, but we can't see that in our lives. And so when we look at our lives, there is this constant struggle between that perfect righteousness that is ours in Christ, the new man that has arisen to live in God in righteous to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. There's a constant struggle between that new man and the sinful flesh that loves to fight against that. And so we we do constantly live in that struggle as Christians, all the while knowing that yes, in Christ we are righteous through faith. We just don't see it. We have this struggle. What why is this an important thing for us to hold on to? This this fact that the Christian life is a struggle. I think it's it's hard for many Christians to to grapple with that. They, they want the Christian life not to be that, but it always is. I know as a pastor, I want to tell people, yes, you you'll get past this, but well, I, I can't say that until the resurrection. <laughs> why is why is this important for us to hold on to this reality that the Christian life is this conflict, as Paul describes it here and elsewhere? Well, if we don't if we don't dwell in the knowledge and understanding that this is a struggle and really dig into the struggle itself, the, other, the only other option is despair, because Christ declares us righteous, and we are, and yet we see that we're not, and that conflict is, is either that Christ is a liar, or that he is doing a great thing in me, and that it isn't complete until the day of resurrection, which Jesus tells us that, and Paul tells us that, and the apostles tell us that, so we know that this is the case. So our only option as Christians is to dwell in this, in this conflicted state and be in, in battle against the old man, against the sinful self, and dwelling in the righteousness. If we expect that perfect righteousness is a thing we will see in the mirror, 
that's not, you, you either have to be a liar to yourself saying that you see righteousness where there is none, or you have to look in the mirror and be in despair because the righteousness you expect isn't there and that's not good enough. And this is, this is the dilemma of the Judaizers and of the pietists and all the struggle with perfect righteousness. We don't see enough righteousness in the people of God. Of course we don't. We see sin because sin is prevalent. That's why forgiveness is always preached to the people of God. That's why exhortation is always given to the people of God. You have not done according to God's law. This is what you should have been doing, which you didn't do. Third use, instructive, turns us back to second use because the instruction in the law turns us to a revealing sin again, which gives us to the despair and in need of forgiveness again. And it is this endless turning, always running right back to the same place, to the foot of the cross, where we find forgiveness in Christ, where we find refreshing and renewal, and stand up again on your feet. Here we go. Let's go back into battle against the flesh. Let's do this all over again until the day of resurrection. This is the life of Christianity. It's not a life of despair. It's a life of hope because it's in Christ. It's not in me. Now, Paul says, again, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the Spirit, these are opposed to each other. And then at the end of verse 17, he says that this keeps you from doing the things you want to do. What does he mean by that? That the the things, well, he, he, he kind of plays that different ways, right? In this case, he's playing with the things you want to do, the desires of the flesh. You want to be in the flesh. That old man in you does want to rebel against righteousness and rebel against God and go back into the the things that are evil and wicked and, and driven by the desires of the flesh. That's what you want. Don't do that. Watch out. This is the the exhortative function. We're we're going to we're gonna hear that this these particular acts are always lurking around the corner trying to ensnare you and capture you back into sin and pull you back away from the righteousness and forgiveness in Christ and separate us from the, the love of God. That's what, the, that's what the sinful self wants to do. That's Satan's whole goal in the world, is to separate us from God. Um, I'm trying to think of where I heard this. I think it was Pastor Wolf Mueller was talking about the, the function of Satan in the world and, and how sin in the form of the world's action and interaction with us and how Satan tempts us comes in the form with, where he will give you anything you want. And we'll find this in just a moment about the, the particular sins that are going to come up. He will even offer you love. If you will use love in a way that is opposed to Christianity, opposed to the forgiveness in Christ, he'll give you a form of love that's wicked, but allow you to have that thing that feels good, that feels warm and fuzzy, so long as it's not the right kind, so long as it's not beneficial for you, and so long as it separates you from God. Anything you want that separates you from God, you can have that. Hmm. Now, Paul says in verse 18, then, if you are led by the Spirit, so this is the, the way that he would have the, the Galatians live, is being led by the Spirit, not by the flesh. He says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Help us into what he means of, with verse 18. Yeah, that's wonderful stuff. The law functions in this instructive, exhortative way. Living in the Spirit, there is only righteousness in the Spirit. And so the law doesn't instruct because the law is already fully understood and, and executed in the Spirit. This is in, in perfect righteousness, the, the new man in Christ that only desires to do good things. There is no condemnation for that new man and that new desire because all that the new man wants is to be righteous. He only wants to do good things and doesn't even need to hear the instruction. It's the old man that needs the instruction because the old man needs to, needs to hear that this is what you ought to be doing and you're not. And so that's that, that's a different function for us as Christians. 
ultimately the law is is always for the old man. The law always returns to the accusation and goes back to that function for us. In Christ, in righteousness, there is no condemnation. This is this is apart from the law. It's different than the law doesn't doesn't have its function in the righteous man who is just righteous and and in is in is in perfect righteousness at all times. Can I say righteous three or four more times in that sentence? I think I might could. That that righteousness is a gift that comes through Christ crucified and risen. The spirit of of the Son again has been poured into our hearts. He cries out, Abba Father, there is our righteousness. Our righteousness is not found by being underneath the law. We have been freed from that. The law now does function as a guide for Christians. There is a, an instruction for Christians in that law, to be sure, but that is not where our righteousness is to be found. Our righteousness is to be found in Christ. He is the one who gives us his Spirit, who now leads us in that righteous life. What does that look like? The Spirit leads us in that, and that's where now this contrast between a walking according to the flesh and a walking according to the Spirit will play out in our lives. And, and in that sense, you know, the law does give that shape to that in the sense that it describes what that life looks like, but it is empowered by the gospel, by the righteousness that comes through faith alone. So we're going we're gonna to get into this contrast now, which really dominates this text, between the works of the flesh on the one hand and the fruit of the Spirit on the other. So Paul starts with the works of the flesh. In verse 19, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Before we get into the list that he gives, let's just talk about a few of the things in that introduction. One, it stands out to me that he speaks of works of the flesh on the one hand and fruit of the Spirit on the other. And then it also stands out to me that he says these works of the flesh are evident. Anybody knows what these things are. You can see them all over the place. So talk a little bit about that, that introduction before we jump into the list itself. Yeah, the works. It, it is interesting because he he uses that language which which dials us into who's doing the who's doing the doing and what the source of these things is. The works of the flesh, the things we are doing, we are engaged in in the flesh. This this is stuff that's obvious to us. Um, now there will of course be some of the things that are slightly less obvious, but he's going to hit the he's going to hit a couple of big ones and go right into these things as soon as I say them. When they when they when you hear the word, oh yeah, of course we know that that is that's the evil inclination of the flesh of the flesh that's at work here and at, at play this is what the flesh does it only wants to do wicked and evil things and here's a couple of big examples of what these wicked and evil things are very different than the fruits of the spirit which are the work of the righteousness that is imputed to us in Christ that that only does good things that is this fruit that's born by faith that comes out in the life of Christians in the, in in the faith that is active and living in us, that that difference in languages is very cool and useful for us to have. So this work, this working in the flesh, the evidence of what we see right in front of our eyes, we can look at the life of Christianity and very quickly find that. When we find when we look at our Catechism and the Ten Commandments, this is the same kind of language that Luther uses to expound upon the commandments, which is the same kind of language that Christ uses, particularly talking about the fifth and the sixth commandment: "You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery." When he opens these things up and says there is a broader sense of this, it's not just murder, but hatred of your neighbor. It's not just adultery, but looking with lust. These things, by opening them up a little bit, you see more deeply that even the act itself is not the, oh, the limit of the sin. It's the desire of doing it that is the, 
that is the root of that. And that itself is sinful too. And all of those things are evident. We can see them from the outside. We don't have to, we don't have to stumble right up to them to see that they're a problem. They're, they're evident in their opposition to the righteousness of Christ that, that wants to express itself and dwell in us and be opposed to that. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, you just turn on the news or you look on the internet or you pick your news source, whatever it is, you don't have a hard time seeing the works of the flesh, and you don't have a hard time identifying them as the works of the flesh either. As you pointed out, when you read the explanations that are given in the small catechism to the commandments, I mean, those those things that Luther writes, like, yep, you're right, that's me, Luther, that's that's what I've got a problem with, those works of the flesh are very evident. Uh, one more thing before we jump into the list, just in terms of the, the contrast, you've got works on the one hand and fruit on the other, indicating where the source is, it's my flesh or the spirit. It also strikes me that the word works is plural, and the word fruit and is singular. Is singular. Yeah, yeah. isn't that Talk fun? Talk a little bit about that. Well, the works, uh, this is this is the the... The multiplication of sin under the law, that it, it, it constantly creates new ways and new pathways to, to cause us to separate ourselves from God. But the Spirit, the work of the Spirit is the one thing. It is faith at work, and it is just that one thing that is constantly at work in us and constantly battling against sin. All of the little corners of sin and the wickedness around us are opposed to the one thing, the forgiveness in Christ and the righteousness we receive from him. That one thing is the thing that produces all the rest of that, whereas sin is this multiplied wickedness and evil that's battling us on all corners. And we, again, we, we talk, about the, talk about it that way in the Catechism. We say there are three things that oppose us, the, the, the sinful self, the world, and, and the devil himself, that these three things are always at battle against us, and this is the way that sin multiplies, that it's, it, it is in all those forms, which it includes me. I'm part of that, that battle against the righteousness. Not just, it's not just the devil made me do it, it's also all of the things that I bring to the table and, and try to corrupt in my own behavior. Mm. Yeah, so we've got a, a strong contrast that Paul draws here between the works of the flesh on the one hand and the fruit of the Spirit on the other. We are going to dig into these lists that he gives more on the other side of the break. You are listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Jason Casper this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks.
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, February 20th. We're studying Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26 with Pastor Jason Casper. He serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. Pastor Casper, prior to the break, we were talking about this distinction that Paul makes, the contrast that he draws between, on the one hand, the works of the flesh, again, works, plural, flesh is the source, on the other hand, fruit, singular, of the Spirit. He is the one who works these in Christians. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, so we have an opportunity to dig into this list. It is a long list, lots of things that we can talk about. Perhaps just give us a broad overview of, of what's here, any structure that you see, and then we can talk about individual terms as needed. Yeah, we're, we're going to start with, um, we're gonna start with, with the internal stuff, the, the driving that causes the impetus to sin. So you got the immorality and the impurity and the sensuality, and then there is more external stuff that's opposed, directly opposed to, to God. So we find idolatry and sorcery. And then there is the, the more external stuff, the enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, this, this stuff that goes into our interaction with the world around us. This is, this is aligned really very much like the Ten Commandments are. We start, with a, we start with a sense that is predominantly our interaction with God. We move to our interaction with our neighbor, and that demonstrates how the function of sin in the world is first opposed to, to the Lord, and then it is opposed to my neighbor, and that's, that flows from one to the other. And so this list is, is arranged in a similar way. And we find this throughout the scriptures that when these things are listed in this way, very often it is like that Ten Commandments structure where it flows from one to the other. It starts with our opposition to God and, and then goes into our opposition to our neighbor and, and how our sin begins there and then, and then explodes out everywhere else and spills all over the world around us, first because we were opposed to the Lord and His will. I appreciate you bringing up the Ten Commandments in connection with this list, because sometimes we do forget about the sins against the first table of the law, that the works of the flesh are evident in the way that we do not love God with our whole heart, mind, body, soul. We often focus on those sins of the second table, so I appreciate you showing that to us in this list. With that in mind, though, if that is the case that we're seeing especially first table sins at the beginning, and, and knowing that this isn't maybe, you know, you got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, exactly in yeah, order. Not, not necessarily like that. Yeah, exactly. But having said that, why then, with that thinking, what's the connection then? Why the sexual sins at the beginning? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, all of those have, a, I think, a similar sense of, of sexual sins before you get to idolatry in the list, which is very clearly first commandment issue. Why, why the sexual sins at the beginning? Is, is there a connection to the, not only the Sixth Commandment, but maybe to the First as well in some of those? Yeah, I think, I think there's a good argument to be made for that as a First Commandment thing first and a Sixth Commandment thing second, that the, the nature of our relationship with God as Creator, He has designed us to function in a particular way, and one of the, one of the chief ways we oppose His creation and this is evident in our society in particular right now, is the way that sexual immorality exposes itself. It, there is only one way that, that sexual interaction is proper for Christians, and that's within the, within the bounds of marriage for a man and a woman who are married together. Everything else is excluded. And yet, in the world outside of Christianity, and even in corners of Christianity that embrace these things, there are all sorts of other versions of that sexuality that are obviously opposed to the Sixth Commandment, but they first oppose the way the Lord created His world, that He first established Himself as Master of creation and designed a world that, dwell, that is to function a particular way, and one of our 
chief ways to oppose that is in our expression of sexuality that is opposed to what he intended for us to do, that, that battles against what the world the Lord created for us is intended to do. He doesn't want us to have a world where we engage in sexual immorality and in behavior that is opposed to marriage and that is opposed to his design. So that first commandment thing, it really does dial right in there, that it begins for, for a lot of dwelling within the flesh, within the world, a lot of that rebellion begins with the flesh stuff and is an expression of a first commandment problem. Yeah, and I, I think that's helpful because the, the sexual immorality is, is a, a very evident thing, but what's it pointing to? Again, it's not simply a sixth commandment issue. It's actually a first commandment issue because in that rebellion, you are rebelling against the very created order that God has put there that should be pretty obvious, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And so you rebel against it's, it's that. It's evident, in fact. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so when you rebel against that, you're that be that's the evident sign that there's a first commandment issue, that there's idolatry in place. And so he makes that plain then with the fourth thing in the list so that we we keep those things connected. Let's let's look at some other things. So we got sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Uh sorcery, that sounds like a second commandment issue. Enmity, strife, I don't know, just we don't we're not probably going to talk about every single one of these in detail. But let's hit some of the highlights here, Pastor Cass, or lowlights, as it were. Yeah, since we're talking about the list of sins, yeah, this, the idolatry and sorcery those are those are sort of obvious in certain ways, right? Because we're gonna be we're gonna be battling against the the nature of the first and second commandment and how we're to use God's name and how we are to acknowledge Christ, God as the as the 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 creator of the earth and the and the and the ruler of of all creation. This engagement here, I really think we could, and I'm stretching a little bit when I do this, but I think the enmity and strife and jealousy stuff, fits of rivalry, anger, dissension, that stuff is is almost third commandment stuff in the life of the church, that we are really to be dwelling together as Christians around God's word, and that that should direct our function as, as a body of Christ in, in, the, in the function of how we, we operate as Christians together. And the enmity battles against that, and it, it it is. There are certainly other applications to this too, but it can it can be understood from a third commandment standpoint that this is part of our failure to conform to the idea that that there is a holy day to be sanctified, and that we are to gladly hear and learn God's word, and that that is what defines Christianity. There isn't room for enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of rivalry and anger and all that other stuff. Those things have no place among Christians, even though, as we know as members of Christian churches, that these things do expose themselves in the Christian faith. We find Christians that have this sort of expression, even though there isn't room for that within Christianity. And so this, this expression of the flesh at work is at work even within the central function of the church amongst ourselves, dealing within, dealing within a, 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 an organized structure. That's one of the things that uh, that makes it so easy to criticize from the outside. You know, the church is full of, of only hypocrites, which, of course, we're not full. There's plenty of room for anyone else. But part of that, that hypocrisy, again, which we were talking about before the break, the notion that somehow there is going to be perfected righteousness among Christians because we're forgiven and we're done. There is still this battle of the flesh that is constantly at work. And you can see it everywhere you go. You don't have to go outside the church to find it. You can find it in the church, too. The battle of the flesh within us that expresses itself in this in this other enmity sort of stuff, we find that too, even within within our interaction in the church and in the faithful. 
One of the nice things about the the list that he does give is that he includes both the, quote, big sins and the little sins, the ones that do stand out to us very obviously, and, and we look with at horror when we see them, and others especially. But by listing some of those, quote, smaller sins, those are ones that we should be able to see in ourselves more readily. And, and that's a, a good thing about this list. And others that you see like this, whether in the Gospels or the Epistles, that Paul here shows that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that the works of the flesh would show themselves in all of us if we are going to be led in this way. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is, it, it's, it's good stuff. This is, this is part of where when, when we're conducting catechesis, um, I spend a lot of time on the Eighth Commandment with, with catechumens because that's the spot where it, it is a seemingly little sin and it's and it seems to be not such a big deal and yet for especially for Christians within the church functioning among ourselves that's the plot spot where we find the most difficulty because we have such a hard time controlling our tongues and the way that we speak about our neighbors and in our desire to have information and share things with each other. I just, we just, we just want to be open and share stuff. Well, sometimes that's not good. Sometimes the things you're sharing are not yours to share, and that, that's really actually an evil thing you're doing. You shouldn't speak that way. That sort of stuff is good for us to hear as Christians and to know that, that even in these other corners where we find this expression, that's where this mirror is most apparent. This, this is you. This is not someone else. This is you. So even though, even though you think you can look down your nose and say, well, the big stuff, I don't do the big stuff. Yeah, but you do this thing. This is still absolutely you also. There isn't, there isn't a place where, where sin is not evident, even in the lives of Christians. We'll see it all over the place. Yeah, and, and putting these things side by side then should help us to have the right reaction when we see those so-called little sins in our own lives. So if the, again, the so-called bigger sins horrify us, and they should, by no, by, by ab- absolutely, sexual immorality, impurity, orgies, drunkenness, those things should cause us to react with horror. We should recognize just how destructive those sins are and flee from them with all of our might. Absolutely. That is the right reaction to those sins. By having it in the list with other sins, then, when I see fits of anger coming up inside my heart, I should have that same horrified reaction to that anger within me that I have to the drunkenness or the orgies or whatever, that big sin out there that I would be horrified against too. We need to learn to be horrified at those small sins lest they develop into more and, and wreak more havoc in our lives and upon others. Yeah, that's the right reaction. And the, the wrong reaction, of course, is the converse of that. These little sins are really not such a big deal, seemingly little sins, we're, we're, we're picking nits here, but the, the bigger sins then, the wrong reaction is, oh, those really aren't such a big deal either. Right. Those are maybe, you know, those are, those are no more separating from God than these other things are. Wrong, wrong idea. The little things are just as bad in separating us from God. And the obvious error, the drunkenness, the orgies, the sorcery, that stuff is just wickedness on full display. And it is evil and it is bad. And these other things are also evil and bad. And this stuff is all getting to the conclusion of this, which is, which is just this is such wonderful stuff that it gets to the, the crux of it all. This is, this is stuff that separates you from the love of God. Yeah. Diving into and enjoying and dwelling in persistent sin, choosing that over the righteousness that Christ is giving you, that will separate you from God, and people engaged in this stuff will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. 
They will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is a thing that will separate us from the love of God. If we really want sin bad enough, we can have that instead of salvation. Yeah, that's right. And, and what you said there about persistent sin, uh, unrepentant sin, stubborn sin, uh, quitting that struggle that we were talking about, that's a sign that the warning that Paul gives there in verse 21 is, is what you need to hear. Uh, falling into a sin or the weakness of a flesh that leads us into sin, that's, that's not necessarily you have lost the kingdom of God. It's where you need to start watching out, absolutely. Sure. But that, that matter of persistent, unrepentant, stubborn sin that doesn't engage in that struggle that we were talking about earlier, when you stop struggling, that's the sign that you're dying. That's the function of the office of the keys in the church, too, that, that the, the, the desire to be forgiven is, is, a, a, is a fruit of the Spirit. The desire to, to receive forgiveness and, and be separated from this sin is evident, but it is still, there is, there is a point, and it's sort of a fine distinction where this point is, but there is a point where my desire to receive forgiveness goes right along with no desire to turn from sin. And that's, that's, that's where the, the retaining and the, and the forgiving function of, of what the church is called to do with it, and it's the keys that are handed off to pastor who then executes these things. What is it that we're supposed to be doing? There is, there is a spot where pastor says, hey, I can't forgive that sin that you're asking, that you're repenting of today, because I, I'm pretty certain that you have no intention of, of doing something different. I think you, you want fire insurance for a thing that you intend to keep doing and, and you hope to get off scot-free. You do actually need to make a turn in life and demonstrate that there's something else going on that you desire to turn from your sin, and that's and that's that is in our confession, right? That that I fervently desire to turn from my sin and to and to mend my ways and live a new life in Christ, and that's that is this exhortation Paul's giving the the danger of these sins in a persistent way, in a non in a non repentant way, in a desire to continue in them. That's not that's not something that cries out, Lord, have mercy. That's something that cries out. Hey, uh, uh, I, I want to escape the punishment here. Now, Paul gives us the contrast in verses 22 and 23, where he makes the turn, the fruit of the Spirit, and we've talked about that introduction already. He lists nine fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I've memorized it in triads. Is, is there a bit of a, a, a structure there, or is that just a, a handy way to memorize it in English, do you think? There's probably a little of both. That's our our brains function that way, and you you probably you know this from preaching that when when you when you preach, it's often it's easier to remember things that you're going to say in threes. It's easier for your your hearers to hear them in groups of three. And when you multiply threes and threes, you have three groups of three. These things assemble more easily in the mind. Um, when we memorize phone numbers, which which is sort of a lost art for a lot of folks these days, but we would memorize phone numbers in the rhythm of a number, which is number number number. Number, 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 right? And so that, that set of threes in memorization, that's, that's a thing that, that, the, that our minds grab onto. You could, this is a bit of a stretch, but you could make an argument that our minds are designed in such a way that we will understand Trinitarian things, and the fact that all this other stuff falls together in our minds this way is really maybe even kind of an expression of, of God designing us in such a way that we can understand the things of God in a small way. That's not by any means a theologically sound, clear statement, but you could make a bit of a statement in that direction, that the threes are, are a thing that fits in our mind well, because we're built to understand things that way. So but, with, yeah. with those things in mind, more importantly, 
Tell, talk to us about the structure and the content of the fruit of the spirit that are listed here. Yeah, these these fruit of the spirit are, are wonderful stuff. We've got the the inversion of what's going on here. Uh, we've got the the love love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self control. Those are the the reversion of what we've been talking about with with all the wicked things. It's 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 the inverse of that. So moving away from that, instead of engaging in hatred, we engage in love. And love is, we find this elsewhere in the scriptures, love is the fulfillment of the law. In the fullness of what the law is, the righteous man in Christ desires only to love God and love his neighbor. And in so doing, fulfills the law in its completeness in everything that we have. There is no condemnation there because the law is completely fulfilled in love for neighbor and for the Lord. This then produces a joy in knowing that we are recipients of forgiveness, that in love of, of, Lord, of the Lord and our neighbor, we're not dwelling in our, our own selfishness, but rather in this external function, serving neighbor and going out outside of that, which also is tied into the peace and the understanding of forgiveness, being at peace with God, dwelling in the forgiveness, which is not the flesh warring against God and warring against righteousness, but rather the flesh being cast aside and the righteousness of God giving being given free course in our life and and dwelling at peace with God instead. Mm. This is wonderful, wonderful stuff. And so to keep, the kindness, keep taking us, yeah, just take us down this progression then, one, one after another. We got about nine minutes here. We I think it's good that we dwell on these fruit before we move into the the rest of the text. So just keep us on, going on that progression. You've got love, joy, peace. Take us into sure. patience. Yeah, patience, patience, or or long sufferingness is another way to express that, right? Yeah. This this notion that the the love of neighbor does suffer evil upon itself, that in love of neighbor, the wickedness of the world which comes upon us is not something that causes the other reaction, which is the fits of anger and the and the rivalries and the dissension. Long sufferingness is is peaceful and patient and and just dwells with the wickedness that comes, understanding that in 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 the in the, the 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 living at peace with God and in serving of love to neighbor, that this is part of that. That simply dwelling and, and catching the slings and arrows of this world, that's part of what being Christian is all about too. And then those acts that flow from that, because there is not anger and rivalry and fits of rage that are the reaction, kindness is, is instead what flow what flows from that. Uh Grandma taught us, of course, that we should always kill everyone with kindness, right? Dwell, dwell in peace and, and, and be kind to all people, not because there's some benefit to us in that, but because this, this is what the righteousness of Christ dwelling in us does. It doesn't seek to, to harm our neighbor in subtle ways, which is the inverse of kindness. Kindness is, is treating your neighbor well. Um, Eighth commandment, speaking wickedly about your neighbor behind their back, that's not the kindness. That's a different kind of interaction with our neighbor. And so kindness dwells differently from that. Goodness, dwelling in the, in the, the, the good and faithfulness of, of the Christian faith, those, those two sort of go hand in hand, that they sort of flow from one another. I'm trying to, to stammer on just a little bit because I was opening up the uh, Galatians commentary here. Luther does a wonderful job of talking about that too in the way that he expresses these fruit of the Spirit a little bit. Yes, I love how you just, I'm opening up the Galatians commentary and everyone knows you're talking about Luther's. <laughs> Sorry, Luther's Galatians commentary. 
Yeah, we're so so kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. And, and just to point out again, as, as you're connecting from one to the other, to see that this is the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. He gives these things to you together. And what a wonderful thing to know that you have these fruit of the Spirit. This is God's promise that He does give and work these things in your life and through you now that you are free in Christ. Uh, what a beautiful gift to have, again, in this fruit of the Spirit. It's he keeps on giving. It's just a, a marvelous thing. Yeah, and each one, and each one flows from one to the next. It's just, it's, it's such wonderful stuff. Uh, in, in the expression of kindness, this is, this is what Luther has to say. This is when people are good-natured and charming as they relate to others with their whole life. Those who follow the gospel will not be sharp or bitter, but instead seek meek, human, courteous, well-spoken, aiming to create harmony. They will overlook others' faults, or at least interpret them in the best light possible. There's that eighth commandment thing again. They will be happy. They will be happily satisfied to yield their places to others, content to tolerate the impulsive and hard to deal with. Even pagans say, "You should know the habits of your friend, but don't hate them." That's how. That's how Christ. That that's how Christ was, as we see through the throughout the Gospels. It is written about in Peter that he cried every time he remembered Christ's meekness, which he used to say, which he used in his daily life. It was an excellent virtue and most necessary in every aspect of life. Mm. Very good, very good. Take us into the last three, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, these are, these are continuations of that same stuff, and the faithfulness dwelling in the Christian life, being faithful in all aspects of Christian life, not just faithful to God, faithful to spouse, faithful to neighbor, faithful to friends, faithful to all of the expression of our word, that our word is true when we speak, that we are faithful to the things we say, all of that goodness dwelling in the way that we treat each other, gentleness, the kind way that we treat our neighbor, which ties in to that, to that kindness function, the gentleness of spirit, the, the sweet nature. It's, it's, this is where the world sort of sees Christians sometimes as weak people because the, the gentle nature that Christianity has in the expression of the righteousness of Christ that is living out itself in the fruit of the Spirit and the way that we interact with the world around us, it, makes, it can make us seem overly passive, which is not the case. We're, we're being gentle and kind and, and, and restrained around the world, which is the, that next bit, the self-control, the restraint that is in the Christianity and in the life of Christians, that we are not bound by this desire of the flesh that's constantly pulling us into things that are not in control, but rather that there is a temperate and, and contained life in the way we speak, in the way we act, in the way we eat, in the way we drink. All of those things are, are contained within limits and, and, and are, are behaving in a way that's good for my neighbor, good for me, and also in benefit to the faith that that Christ has has dwelling in us and living living through us, these these are all they're, they're such wonderful things in the way they flow from one to another and the way that they oppose the wicked things that are listed before. That the self control that's that's such a such a great crown on that whole thing. The self control opposes everything else in that other list. All those other things are the example of self control that doesn't exist. And if you're controlled, none of those other things pop up because. We're contained within within limitations of how we behave. 
Mm. Yeah, yeah. So very good. We've gone through the list of the fruit of the Spirit. So much there to rejoice in, to meditate, to receive as gift of God himself. Got about three minutes here to wrap things up this morning, Pastor Casper. Verse 24 reminds me of the way Paul talked back in chapter 2, that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives me. I've been crucified with Christ, that kind of language. Uh, and so mm-hmm. since this is my life by the Spirit, then let us also walk. Let that, that life be made evident by walking. And rather than being conceited and provoking and envying, right, the life of the Spirit, walking the Spirit, is opposed to that. Help us in those last three verses, wrap things up for us this morning on this marvelous text. Yeah, and all those, all those who belong to Christ, those of us who are part of this righteousness and faith, we have, we have crucified the flesh with the passions and the desires. That All that stuff should, should not just, this is, where, this is where we talk about it from the small catechism, that daily we should remember that our sins are dead in Christ, that all of that has been bound up in Christ's death and it no longer holds sway over us. So we ought to regularly, often, and always remember that those desires have been crucified with him. Let them die. Let them be where they are. Don't pull that stuff back up out of the grave. You don't, you don't need to pull that stuff back up. Leave it where it is. Let it be where it is. And instead, we have the opportunity to live by the Spirit. We have the, we have the gift of righteousness that wants to push itself out through us into the world around us, that wants to love only God, that wants to to only do the things that are good for my neighbor. And so if we live by the Spirit, we should also be walking that way. And this is, this is the gift the gospel gives. In forgiveness in Christ, the righteousness that is imputed into us, that is given to us, which now brings forth this spirit of, of, of fruit, this fruiting of the Spirit that, that goes out into the world and serves our neighbor and loves the Lord, this is the life we have to live. This is, this is, what has, this is what's on the far side of that crucifixion. Now that everything is crucified in Christ, this, this is what we get to live instead. We don't need to be conceited. We don't need to be envious or angry or any of those things. All that stuff is, is the old way. That's all put aside. That's behind us. Now you have only the righteousness in front of you. And as we've been saying throughout this, this is a cyclical thing. It's not a, it's not a, a thing you will see that's immediately done in life because instead Christ is continually providing this refreshing and renewal again and again, and continually putting you back up on your feet, walking you forward in, in newness of life again and again. And that, that is this, this be- the beauty of, of Christianity, that there is always a refreshing and a renewal, and we are always being made new in Christ, and we are always being consistently forgiven in Christ, so that we are preserved in the faith until the last day when all this is finally done and complete, and the righteousness of Christ is all that remains, and sin is gone forever locked away, never to bother us again. Pastor Jason Casper is pastor at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. He's been helping us today to study Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26. Pastor Casper, thanks for being our guest today. Yes, thanks for having me again, sir. It's always a treat. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Galatians chapter 5, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk again tomorrow. Showing support for KFUO is now easier than ever. 
You can sport a KFUO shirt, swag, or even socks by visiting our online store. Go to KFUO.org slash store and order high-quality KFUO-branded merch. You no longer need to wait for our annual share for a chance to show your KFUO spirit. Visually share and wear this ministry out in the world by checking out our selection. Every purchase helps to support our proclamation of Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Go to KFUO.org slash store.